welcome everybody. Time for another episode of WVU Marketing Communications Today. Brought to you by the good folks at West Virginia University's Marketing Communications Online Graduate Program. As each week we explore unique Marcom strategies that will help you inform, persuade, and inspire your audience with the man who always does all three of those, uh, Matthew <laughs> Cummings. <laughs> I give it a shot. Well, let's just <laughs> let's just leave it at that, right? Okay. <laughs> well, thank you for that very kind and generous introduction, Paul. Today we're going to discuss the power of influencer marketing and how brands can focus on building affinity even during these unprecedented times. Amid the current pandemic, every business is really soul searching and wondering how to move forward with their marketing communication strategy. Some common themes have emerged as to how businesses are trying to further humanize their brand, generate empathy from the public, and to simply do the right thing. In parallel, though, many businesses have pulled the plug, at least temporarily, on advertising programs, many of which include influencer marketing. Is this the right approach, though? Our guest today is Neil Schaefer, a leading authority on helping businesses through their digital transformation of sales and marketing through consulting, training, and development and execution of social media marketing strategy, influencer marketing, and social selling initiatives. Neil is president of the digital marketing agency PDCA Social. He also teaches digital media to executives at Rutgers University, the Irish Management Institute in Ireland, and the University of Yuvuskila in Finland. I think I said that correctly, Neil. Fluent in Japanese and Mandarin Chinese, Neil is a popular keynote speaker and has been invited to speak about digital media on all four continents in more than a dozen countries. He is also the author of four books on social media, including Maximize Your Social and the recently published Age of Influence, the definitive data-driven playbook for influencer marketing. Thank you for making the time, Neil. Appreciate it. Oh, it's an honor to be here, gentlemen. How did I do on that uh, f- that Finland, the University of Yavuskila? You were really close. It's Yavaskila. Most people just don't even try. So I, I give you brownie points for trying. <laughs> I appreciate that. So let's dive in. Uh, question one here. I want to address the gorilla in the room. So during the current pandemic, you're recommending businesses continue to invest in influencer marketing. Why is that? Well, investing in influencer marketing is all about investing in relationships. So if your company plans to be around after the lockdown and coronavirus is over, uh, the need to really connect with your community is still there. So mm-hmm. as a brand, you have many ways to connect with, a, with your community, but your reach is only a subset of who you could reach in the public. And that's really where influencers come in, people that have communities, however large or small, that you want to influence, that you want to become part of your community. I think in marketing, it all comes down to relationships and influencers or people, especially with the way that I define influence, which isn't just those TikTokers and Instagrammers, it's really a lot broader than that, yeah. can really help your brand in so many ways, including ultimately humanizing your brand when others are doing the talking for you. Let's take a step back. Don't you consider influencer marketing, though, to be paid media in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, you know, this is a misnomer that I've found is that a lot of people just think that influencer marketing is paid media. It's a one-time transaction with 
a celebrity, right. in which case it's very much like that celebrity endorsement model that, that still exists today, right? But I think what's changed over the last 10 years is that not only content consumption and content creation has become democratized, but media influence has become democratized. People, 10 years ago, you didn't have people that had 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 followers on Instagram. You didn't have YouTubers that had subscribers in the millions. You didn't have LinkedIn influencers, for instance. You didn't have people on Twitter that had the number of followers that a lot of influencers do today. You also don't have a workforce that is digital native today with a majority, at least here in the United States, of the workforce being millennial. So, you know, we're now in our second decade of social media where a lot more people have a lot more influence and more and more people go or are influenced most by social media rather than traditional media. And this means that it's not necessarily paid media because when you collaborate with an influencer, it just doesn't have to be about money. We're seeing a lot of very, very savvy businesses realize that in order to better humanize their brand from the content creation perspective, they just can't compete with the quality of content that's out there that people are producing. It's, this is why uh, Disneyland and, and Ritz-Carlton, they actually just publish user-generated content on their Instagram channel, for instance. Leveraging and collaborating with influencers, not just for content amplification, but for the actual content creation, is another area that more and more brands are waking up to and seeing value in. You know, leveraging influencers almost as if they were an in-house content creation studio. And then if influencers are really tied into their community, it's almost like a, a user focus group that you can tap mm -hmm. into to try to find out what are people thinking about. And obviously, there's social listening tools and other way of doing this, but the influencers and, and relationships with them offer you the ability to do that as well. What I preach in the age of influencers, it's not about a one-time transaction. The true ROI comes when you convert these people into becoming true brand advocates through a long-term, mutually beneficial collaboration. Collaboration is something that you've mentioned a lot here. I'm taking notes here. So other words that I highlighted, uh, connections and relationship. Let's stay on relationships and building those connections for just a bit. So you're saying essentially that there are more ways to develop relationships with key influencers than just merely having them amplify your content, right? Can you outline some of those ways and give some tips on how to do that? Yeah, I sort of hinted at it. I mean, at the heart of it is that every influencer, and the way I define influence, maybe I should just take a step back. Yeah. You know, in the influencer marketing industry, which is very Instagram-centric, that's where they say 80 to 90% of influencer marketing budgets go, they define influence by number of followers. And if we look at that model, it you know begins with celebrity and then macro, mid-tier. And then over the past five or six years, we've heard the term micro-influencer. And these are people that have over 10,000 followers, so there's nothing micro about them, but they're not celebrities right. per se. But over the past one or two years, we hear now a lot about nano-influencers. And these are people that have potentially as low as 1,000 or even some have said 500 followers. So when we get to the nano-influencer level, you begin to look around and go, huh, we probably have some of our employees that have maybe some of our salespeople that have 1,000 LinkedIn connections or maybe some of our digital natives that have 1,000 Instagram followers. I mean, my 15-year-old daughter is a freshman in high school has, you know, four or 500 followers. So when you look at it that way, you begin not to look at influence in terms of number of followers, because if someone doesn't know, like, and trust your brand, it does become transactional. But if there are people with less influence, but still have influence that are your actual employees, that are your actual partners, your customers, your followers, these are people that already have some brand affinity with you. So what I preach is, let's not look at influence in terms of 
follower size, let's look at it the other way from brand affinity. Because when someone already knows your brand or they're already a customer, it's just going to be much, much easier to work with and collaborate with. And this is where you get into these different sort of collaboration models. Content amplification, sure. But what someone publishes is very personal to them, right? Not everybody wants to do that. And not everybody's the same. There are some influencers that this is their full-time gig. They're just in it for the money. There are others that we're finding, especially at the micro and nano level, that if you send them free products, they'll be more than happy to post it on social media. Mm-hmm. It doesn't require thousands or even hundreds of dollars to incite word of mouth with people that have a genuine interest in your product and that have an authentic experience with it. And yes, I was able to publish this because I was supplied this product by the company, but these are my personal opinions. And, and when it's put in that way, I think people, it still comes across as being very authentic, even though, yes, there was sort of this, this sponsored element to it. Obviously, uh, product reviews is one, that, that content creation. So let's take that one step further. So instead of paying money, we're now sending product. And when we send product, hey, when you publish content on social media, can we get rights to that content? And can we use that content in our organic social media? And what we're finding also is when brands use user-generated content in their paid advertising, their social media ads, but also on their website, on their shopping cart pages, they're converting a lot greater. And I believe this is the ultimate way to humanize your brand. It's not you talking about your brand, like I said, it's Mm -hmm. others and how they depict your brand. So these are some ways. I also talked about the user focus group. When you begin to create a long-term program, I know brands out there that are actually creating training programs for these influencers or influencers that are part of their community now. They want to teach them how to take better photos, better copywriting, better messaging, better networking, better communicating, because they know that if they invest in them, it's going to pay dividends back to the brand. Hmm. We now look at a long-term program really fostering a community of people that have brand affinity with us that have some influence in social that are helping us in many, many ways. And from that, yes, you could tie into the user focus group. You could do interviews with your product marketing folks. In fact, if you ever have a social media crisis, these are great people to tap into as well, right? So you're just, you're beginning to create your own community, but it's not some online community that anyone can apply to. It's people that you're choosing because you think they have somewhat of influence there, you know, at the nano micro level, but they also have brand affinity for you. So you know that you're friends. It's a really thoughtful approach. I like that. And I think it's important to realize for all of us that influencers can really come in many forms. Again, like you mentioned, it's not the celebrities with 4 million followers. A lot of us think. What are some of the long-term trends in marketing that you feel still prove out the increasing value of influencer marketing for brands? I think there's a few major trends that have driven its growth and that will continue to drive its growth forward. First of all, we know that there's a trust factor, right? People, Edelman Trust Barometer, all the Nielsen data, people just trust people that they can relate to, people like themselves. And that's especially so in social media, where you see content that's relatable to you versus content that's coming from a logo. If you like that brand, it's one thing, but if you've never heard of them, that often, even if it's organically published, it comes out as an advertisement to many people. And then you have the fact that people are trying to block out ads, right? You know, social media was made for people, mm-hmm. not for businesses. So they're trying to block out those ads. And if they see something that's sponsored, immediately they may go buy it. And which isn't to say that you can't be successful with supplementing your organic with paid in social, but there is that factor. There are those people that just don't trust ads. 
right? That they'll, they'll just look another way. And, and it doesn't come out as being organic. And then you have the whole reason why there's so much paid advertising in social is because the algorithms are always going to favor people. They have to be people first to keep social media users on and to keep advertising dollars coming. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Zuckerberg announced this publicly back in early 2018, but it's something that marketers have always known that the organic reach of brand content in social media just becomes less and less over time. When you work and, you know, collaborate with influencers, you're cutting through the noise, right? You're actually doing what a lot of marketers thought social media was going to be back in the early days of Facebook when friends of fans would actually see your content, this whole viral word of mouth. Right now, I think the only way to really incite word of mouth in organic social is really working with paid social media is probably not going to incite that word of mouth either. I believe that working with influencers is really the best way to to reach that original intent of social media. And in a way, because you're developing relationships with people, it actually brings the social back into social media for businesses. Love it. We're going to take a quick break now. We're going to come back and talk more about influencer marketing, who's doing it well, and also get a sense for where Neil thinks it's heading in the future. Hang tight. We'll be right back. And yes, we will. So don't uh, don't go anywhere. We just want to make a couple of quick reminders to you here. The online marketing communications programs at West Virginia University, they really are designed to help you explore unique Marcom strategies that will help you inform, persuade, and inspire your audience. So if any of those are things you aspire to do, you might want to check out the WVU Marketing Communications Online Graduate Programs at WVU. Go check those out. WVU's Integrate Conference has moved online. Marketing communications experts from a variety of industries are going to be online exploring how and what to say during this unprecedented global pandemic. You can view the schedule, you can tune into the live virtual sessions, and you can learn a lot more at integrate.wvu. Edu. That's the Integrate Conference brought to you by West Virginia University every year. So this year it's not down in the, the beautiful mountain state. It's on your browser at integrate.wvu.edu. We're back with Matthew Cummings here and his guest. Here's the question I have for your guest. What Go ahead. makes an influencer. Is there a threshold of followers that you suddenly can call yourself an influencer, or does it vary by the tribe you're trying to influence? If I if I'm trying to get in front of some obscure group, and they and and this person has captured all of them, even though there are only a handful of them, does that make them an influencer, or is it strictly people Beyonce who has a million billion followers? So here's my response to that, and and this is what I tell every business, because I believe that every industry can leverage influencers. I'll never forget when I did, it was about two years ago, I did a full-day marketing workshop for one of the big five pharma brands, and out of all the concepts I went through, they felt that influencer marketing was the most powerful. So if you're a pharmaceutical company, who has influence over, over drugs? It's actually nonprofits who have communities of people that are looking for drugs to, to use to cure themselves, right? When you look at influence online very holistically, here's the approach to take for other businesses. So even this startup B2B company in the software industry that I'm working with, we approach it like, okay, if I am a social media user and I'm interested in a topic, who is out there talking about this topic that might influence me? That's where it starts because influencers really, at the heart of it, they are content creators. 
They're creating YouTube videos. They're creating blogs. They're publishing content on LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok videos, whatever it might be. Which social network might I go to if I have an interest in that subject? And when I do a search, who do I find? What comes up? And we can do searches on Google as well. And we can do searches on, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Pinterest, which are almost like search engines of themselves. And we begin to get a sense that, okay, who are the people talking about this subject that we want to tap into? And then of these people talking, not just number of followers, what is their content like? Does it resonate with their audience? So what is the engagement looking like? Is their content really relevant to what we want to do? Maybe one time we find on Google they published a blog post that was relevant to our company, but 99% of their content is really focused on another industry. When you look at it holistically in this way, it's not about what is the threshold. It's really comparative, right? Of those people that we find, and you know, if you use influence marketing tools, you might be able to do this quicker, but I usually recommend you look for people in, in the tens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of your consumer brand. You begin to get a sense as to you know, who has a larger following, who has a smaller following. And from there, what's going to happen is this is where the brand affinity model kicks in. Because if you try to contact Beyonce, you're not going to get a reply unless she likes you uh, or she knows you. And if, if you do get a reply <laughs> and she's never heard of you, it's going to be really expensive. That's where it becomes transactional, right? That's and, where the business mode comes in. But and, if it's a brand that she actually uses, that she loves, you're going to get a very, very different response. So that's where when the brand affinity model kicks in, you're going to have a higher chance of converting when you start with people that are brand affinity for you. And then as you incite more word of mouth marketing, when you reach out to other influencers, they're gonna see that all these other influencers are talking about you and you're gonna be more successful. And I was just gonna interject that Beyonce is a big fan of Matthew Cummings. So I I don't <laughs> I don't know that that's a problem for Matthew getting through, but many of us, yes, we would struggle to get there. We're supposed to keep that quiet, Paul. I, so. you know, I, uh, I couldn't resist. You know, I, I, yeah. Back. <laughs> so <laughs> we digress. We digress. So our guest today, again, Neil Schaefer, president of digital marketing agency, PDCA Social. Neil, you just talked about how to identify influencers and, and what makes an influencer. Let's go to the other side of the coin here. And if you're working with a client, how do you know if influencer marketing might or might not be appropriate for them? Yeah, like I said, I really think that regardless of industry, regardless of company, there is a role. And at a minimum, what I find, especially if you're in the B2B space where you're maybe scratching your head as to how this all works. So let's look at it this way. What are the different avenues you have for, for marketing, marketing communication? Obviously, you have a website, right? And you want your website to be found in search engines. So you have SEO, organic, pay-per-click, paid. We're all doing that. You have email marketing, right? Email marketing, marketing automation, whatever you want to call it. You have content. So you have, you know, blogs. You have, if you're a B2B company, you have sort of like lead generation, assets, lead magnets. And then you right. have social media, both organic and paid, and you have content marketing. So I don't think that for a lot of consumer-facing startups, um, you know, Instagram is the main focus and influencer marketing becomes the main focus of the budget. But for other companies that maybe haven't started, you're doing all these other things. What if we take some money out of our SEO efforts, like pay-per-click, or mm -hmm. let's take some money out of our paid media and funnel this into influencer marketing? When we look at it this way, we can start by creating this program, doing a campaign, Sometimes it doesn't even cost money, it costs product, but there are obviously costs associated with that. And we can see what sort of 
engagement? What sort of increases in website traffic or increases the number of followers? Or depending on the campaign, it could be you know a click-through to an e-commerce store, right? But if your company, if this doesn't sound right to your company, you're more on the B2B side, then really it comes down to that content piece, right? So mm-hmm. it could be a blog interview. It could be a webinar where you invite someone as a guest. So one of my clients, they literally just started on Twitter. They have like 70 followers. But they're getting people to uh, join their webinar that have followers in the hundreds or in the thousands. So to them, it's huge, right? On the grand scheme of things, you know, they may not even be considered nano-influencers. But to this company, they are because the influence they have compared to them. And they can leverage them for this webinar to try to get a bigger audience. Because when you work with, uh, when you collaborate with influencers, especially on content, whether it's a podcast interview, a blog interview, a webinar, uh, chances are that they're also going to share it out to their network. And that's where right. you get that effect. You get, you get the social proof and credibility that you actually work with people that are known in the industry that, that have some influence. But then obviously when they share that, that's where you get the additional benefit. It's why a lot of podcasts purely do interviews and they tap into people that are bigger than they are because it helps them with, with everything I just talked about. I think podcasting is really a great way of looking at how influence from a content-centric perspective works. And this is really the key for B2B. When we have live events, I know West Virginia University has, has the, uh, the virtual event coming up. You also want to bring in speakers that have influence, and they're going to promote it to their network that they're speaking at your event. So this is you know, another way in which it, it's sort of hard to quantify what is the ROI of that, but you know, it, intrinsically you know that that has a benefit for your company. And that's where and that's, Math, Matthew's trying to get uh, Beyonce to come uh, speak at the Internet Conference. <laughs> it still hasn't been announced yet. We're still in negotiation, you know, something like that. But Matt's trying to use his influence because she does listen to this podcast quite often. Working, working through that, yeah, for sure, for sure. Only matter. So I want to I ask you, Neil, just uh, one last question here before uh, we're, we're almost running out of time. Um, but you talked earlier about leveraging employees as influencers, but for many brands, employee advocacy programs maybe haven't yielded the intended results uh, that they had hoped for. So why do you think that is the case? Yeah, you know, employee advocacy is, is really, really interesting and has an interesting history. And yes, there, I think there were a lot of failures or underperforming or maybe high expectations. And even some of the employee advocacy tools companies that I know, they now call themselves employee engagement companies. And they focus more on that engagement side. I think at the end of the day, there is this role that internal communications has to educate the employees on what is happening in the world. But I think the problem with those programs, especially early on, were we're going to create this great content. You'd all love to share it. Just authorize your social media accounts. We'll feed it to you, and you can automatically schedule it. And I think people are saying, I don't really want to share this stuff um, with my personal networks, right? And I think that, um, you know, the same mistake that a lot of brands make with the traditional view of influence marketing is they sort of treated employees as, as programmable ad units. It wasn't a collaboration. It was a one-sided relationship. So if you take a step back and if you treat employees as you would influencers, so what are some of those influencer programs doing? They're training employees. We're going to train you. We know that social media is a core skill, that personal branding is a core skill. If we train you, you're going to look better on social media, and therefore we're going to look better on social media, right? So it's looking for that collaboration. It's not just saying share our content. It's like, hey, you know, we have an event coming up. We'd love to get a bunch of photographers out there. Who wants to fly with us to Hawaii um, (laughs) to take some brand photography that we're going to use on our Instagram, right? It's treating employees as if they were influencers. 
I call it more like an employee influencer program, but it's treating them no different than you would treat external people in your program. And that is, I think, the missing link that most brands were not doing uh, back in the day. Got it. I want to uh, ask you just one more kind of personal question here. So your agency, PDCA Social, what does PDCA stand for? (laughs) So uh, have you ever heard of Professor Edwards Deming? Okay. Know the name. Okay. Yeah, whenever I speak, I'll I'll ask people, hey, who knows? And there's always a few people in the audience from the manufacturing industry that know that he's considered the godfather of quality control. Mm -hmm. So uh, I actually started my career in Japan, where I lived for 15 years after graduating from university. And every employee at the semiconductor manufacturing company I worked at had to learn what's called the Deming Circle. And the Deming Circle is something that you apply to anything you do in work. What uh, Professor Deming, he, he created this circle as a way of managing experiments, right, for quality control. So what do you do when you have an experiment? You plan it, you do according to plan, you check your results, and then you optimize, you act upon your findings, and it's a never-ending Kaizen circle. When I was early on in my career in social media, I launched my social media strategy consultancy back in 2010. There were no, were no frameworks for how to develop a social media strategy for enterprises. And I, I connected the dots and realized that social media in many ways is like an experiment And what most companies were doing was they didn't have a plan or a strategy. They were just doing, and they weren't checking, and then they didn't know how to measure the effectiveness of what they were doing. So I thought that PDCA was just extremely uh, effective as a framework for managing digital and social media marketing, and it's something that I've done ever since then. And I even made it part of my agency's name to let my clients know that this is what we use, that we're data-driven, and we treat it as an experiment, trying new things, but we're going to continually optimize and Kaizen to get better and better results over time. Love it. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And uh, we've run out of time, but if you want uh, more, more from me, you can check out his Maximize Your Social Influence podcast for some weekly inspiration. Again, great advice, great insights here. Thanks again for making the time, Neil. And thank, thank you, you for listening to WVU Marketing Communications today from West Virginia University. I hope you found today's episode as informative as I have. And until next time, take care. You've been listening to another episode of WVU Marketing Communications Today, brought to you by the good folks at West Virginia University, a weekly program that explores unique Marcom strategies that will help you inform, persuade, and inspire your audiences today and tomorrow, right here on the Funnel Radio Network, for at-work listeners like you.